Way to go. The Bible. <laughs> I'm not asking you anything ever. We're in Jeremiah, and we introduced chapter 41 last week. I'll fill in. Where? Oh, before we go a step further, has anyone just gotten married, say, yesterday? Can you? Because ra- it happens a lot. And could you just raise your your hands? Uh, just do you see those people? That's Paul and Shirley Marcasio, and they done got married yesterday. Shirley got Paul in the auction, and. <laughs> Let's just say all sales are final. (laughs) So we shall, from this day forward, pray for Shirley. (laughs) I need not say more. Congratulations to you both. We love you guys. And it is a blessing to see you together as husband and wife. Wonderful, wonderful. Great, great, great. Trish is back from New York. Trish, can you stand just for a second and uh, tell us something good? (laughs) She'll give a lengthier report later, but just a little brief word now. Thank you, Trish. It was perfect as as usual. Um, 
that is a wonderful representative of truth to the very influential representatives of the nations of the world. It's the second year Trish went, was invited to go, and went trusting God to open up doors of opportunities, which we very briefly heard about. Um, she is advancing the Lord's agenda with regard to the sanctity of life to decision makers of the world. And you are a blessing, and we are glad that you went. And Trish mentioned earlier, uh, she was very appreciative and sensed the prayer support, which was more substantial for her this year than last, and that made quite a difference. Thank you, dear sister. We're glad to have you back. Probably the guy you're sitting next to is glad to have you back, too. Uh, I'm just assuming. <coughs> Jeremiah 41. Here's what happened. I'll give you a little summation of where we have been, and then we'll proceed further. The Babylonians are in the land. It's Israel's fault. Uh, the Babylonians are a vehicle of discipline because wayward Israel needed it. Uh, they succeeded in taking the land, did the Babylonians. They burned down the temple in Jerusalem, occupied the land, carried off thousands into bondage into Babylon. Uh, some, however, remained in the land, refusing to surrender. One was a man named Ishmael, a military commander. He refused to submit to the puppet governor set up over the land by Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king. The governor being a man named Gedaliah, Gedaliah. Ishmael entered into partnership with um, Israel's enemies and also Babylon's enemies across the Jordan River in a place called Ammon, present-day Jordan. The Ammonites uh, positioned Ishmael to take the life of the puppet governor of Babylon so as to cause a measure of unsettledness in the land which would distract Babylon from Ammon and thus having to give full attention to what was going on in Israel. Ishmael then uh, takes the life of Gedaliah, the Babylonian appointee. He kills him and a number of others with him in such crafty fashion that it looked like he was going to get away with it. So that's kind of the situation, and now we pick up the action in chapter 41, verse 6. Ishmael, now you know who he is, went from Mizpah to meet them. The them are Israelites returning to the land because a measure of stability that would be under Babylonian control uh, was ensuing in the land. These, this group, was coming into the land to grieve and mourn the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. So Ishmael goes out to meet them, notice, weeping as he went. And as he met them, he said, come to Gedaliah. He gives them an invitation they cannot refuse. They've been outside of the land for some time. He said, I can arrange for you to have entree into conversation with the newly appointed governor of the land, Gedaliah. Of course, this is a fraudulent claim because Gedaliah is dead at Ishmael's own hands. Uh, it is quite remarkable the extent to which we can come to be so good at being so bad. This is a bad dude. He murdered the governor, and many others with him. He feigns 
uh, tears. He had the capacity, so hard it was he, to fake emotion, to join in with these others in lamenting the destruction of the temple in order to put them at ease so that he could invite them to a certain place and you'll see then take their lives. Folks, I need to tell you something. But for the new birth, the original birth leaves us with astounding potential to do evil. Uh, the Bible gives rise to something called the doctrine of the total depravity of humankind. The doctrine of total depravity does not mean we are as bad as we could be. It means we could be astoundingly bad. Illustration. The only difference between Ishmael and you, if you are a Christian, is that his inclinations were unrestrained. Yours have come to be restrained by God's presence in you. It, 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 it is not possible uh, uh, for inherent human nature to be put under wraps except by transformation thereof. So it takes the addition of the divine presence, the Holy Spirit of God, in our lives for there to be transformation of inherent human nature. You and I have the capacity... Uh, for a great extent of evil, it is under restraint because of the presence of God within us. We are sinners with the restraining influence of the Holy Spirit. He's one without any restraint. You cannot corral human nature by reading a self-help book. It's way out of control. So Paul cries out in an agonized way, you know... What I want to do, I don't. <clears throat> and what I don't want to do, I do. And then he says, what book can you recommend that could set me free? No. <laughs> Who shall set me free? And then he answers his own question by saying, but thanks be to whom? God, through whom? Christ Jesus, who sets me free. So you see a man astoundingly good at being bad. All right. Verse 7. It turns out when they came inside the city, Ishmael and his uh, partners slaughtered them and cast them into a well, a cistern. But ten were found among them, and they made a plea. They said, don't kill us, Ishmael. We have stuff. And this stuff is listed. They make an appeal to his greed. And it worked. They said, we have hoarded, we have stored grains, wheat, stuff like that. We know where it is. Let us live, and it's yours. So he does. He doesn't put them to death. Verse 9, as for the cistern where he cast all their corpses, it was one that King Asa made on account of Baasha, king of Israel. This is a historical sidelight, which Jeremiah thinks it is important for us to know about. Uh, 300 years prior to this, the cistern was constructed, apparently, by a man named King Asa in uh, preparation for a siege by another Israelite king, King Baasha. So the cistern, which was then used to contain water so as to sustain life, is now used um, to receive those whose lives have been prematurely terminated. Verse 10, Ishmael took captive the remnant of the people. So here's what he did. 
He kills the governor. He kills these visitors. He kills, he kills, he kills. Uh, but he takes uh, hostages, a remnant of those who in this particular area survived, and some are listed. Uh, they are no less in some cases than the king's daughters and a bunch of other people. So he has hostages now. And uh, he takes them captive. But verse 11, Johanan, in Hebrew, it's Yohanan. Uh, but okay, we'll give you a break. Uh, Johanan uh, was another Israelite military officer who survived Babylonian onslaught, but he was loyal to the Babylonian appointee. He hears about Ishmael's uh, horrific deeds and is going to do something about it. So Johanan and all the commanders with him hear about Ishmael's evil, and they took men to fight against him, and they found him. The place is named Great Pool in Gibeon. Gibeon, you can visit it today, about six miles um, west, northwest of Israel. By the way, uh, this pool, uh, which is in view here, it has been identified by archaeologists unearthed. You can visit it. It's about 82 feet deep, contains lots of water, steps go down so that you can fetch it. So it's an identifiable place. Anyway, that's where they meet. As soon as all the people with Ishmael saw Johanan, they were glad. You see, they were, they were captives. They were being kidnapped. Uh, they were hostages. And when they saw Johanan, they saw, oh, my goodness, relief, rescue is uh, on the way. So all the people whom Ishmael, verse 14, had taken went to Johanan. But, verse 15, Ishmael went to the sons of Ammon. So what he did... If you track it geographically, he had to go eastward uh, through the Jordan River Valley, across the Jordan River, into the territory of the Ammonites, which is essentially in the same area as the capital of present-day Jordan, Amman. So they went in that, in that direction, you see. Verse 16, then Johanan and all the forces with him took the remnant of the people. As you can see, I'm skipping. In case you're wondering, what translation is that guy reading out of? <laughs> Stuart Rothberg version. Just for the sake of time, I'm just giving some highlights here. So he takes the remnant of the people, and he went, verse 17, to stay at a place, very hard to pronounce, Gerut Chimcham. What does it mean? It probably means in, named after a person named Chimcham. We know its location is near Bethlehem. The text says so, right? In, Why? They needed lodging. They're on the run. Where are they running to? They're on the road to Egypt. You go south first through Bethlehem. They settle in for an overnight. Their destination is Egypt. That's kind of what's happening over here. Why? We're told in verse 18 because of the Chaldeans. What do you mean? By the way, Chaldeans, another name for Babylonians. Because these people say, oh, my goodness. There's chaos in the land due to the uh, assassination of the Babylonian appointee by one of us. Therefore, the Babylonians will certainly come. There'll be reprisals. We've got to get out of town. So that's essentially what's going on. And they think they need to make haste for Egypt in order to get out of town. So I ask you a question. We'll make it rhetorical uh, because if you answer it, then I won't have anything to say about the next chapter. 
So it's just rhetorical. Their uh, movement from uh, Judah, Israel, into Egypt, good or bad? Don't answer. Um, I didn't say reasonable or unreasonable because that you could answer. Very reasonable. Uh, I, I mean, things are going rotten in Judah. It's pretty bad. There's famine, there's war, there's potential revenge by the Babylonians. Get out of town. I didn't say whether it makes sense. What they did makes perfect sense. My question is, is this in the will of God? Yes or no? Well, hang on. That's what 42, chapter 42 is all about. So that's where we go. Chapter 42, here we go. Then all the commanders, Johanan, all the people, small and great, approached and said to Jeremiah, wait a second, fascinating. In all the decades, and there were, of Jeremiah's ministry, he had plenty of things to say to them. They not only did not listen, they never sought his advice. In fact, that accounts for the jam they're in right now. He had lots to say. God gave him lots to say to the people. These people turned a deaf ear. All of a sudden, they're seeking out information from Jeremiah. Fascinating. What's also fascinating is that they have a Jeremiah whose advice they could seek. That he is alive is remarkable. Folks, there have been all kinds of threats on his life. His people hate his guts. They're not, he has not told them what they want to hear. Tell us everything is cool. He said it ain't cool. Tell us we're okay. He said you're not okay. Tell us we'll win. He said you're not going to win. You're going to get beat up. You don't get elected by that kind of stuff. So you tell people what they want to hear. If you want to be electable. He didn't want to be elected. He wanted to represent God. So they didn't listen to him. And not only that, they wanted to kill him. Not only do his own people want to kill him. Folks, there's been this astounding incursion by the greatest empire then known to humankind, the Babylonian Empire. They slaughtered, they killed, they pillaged. They, they carried uh, folks off into bondage in uh, Babylon. And this guy's alive. How? I'll tell you how. If you are a Christian, you are immortal until the second when God says, come home. But you're not going home one second too soon, and you're not going home one second too late. Whimsy does not determine your destiny. The circumstances of life did not determine your departure. Your cancer, your heart condition, terrorists, an airplane crash, upheaval in the Middle East, do not call the shots. The God who possesses you at a price calls the shots. Now, I don't often approve of his timing, but I don't remember him ever asking for my approval. He asks for my trust, not my approval. Folks, don't panic in an otherwise panically, panicky world situation. You are immortal. Even in the midst of a Babylonian incursion and hatred by your own who are out to take your life, they can't touch you until God permits it because he wants you home. Be careful. Be careful. So Jeremiah's alive. Verse 3. They say to him, excuse me, verse 2. Pray for us to the Lord. Do you see what they say? In verse 2, pray to us to the Lord. Who's God? Wow, that ought to smack you in the face. The Lord your God? 
but they're descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob with whom God established a covenant by grace. They're privy to the covenant. What happened? Pray to the Lord, your God. It's very interesting phraseology here. Anyway, uh, we're, we're just a few. Pray to him that the Lord your God, verse 3, can tell us the way in which we should walk. What, what should we do? But wait a second, folks. Didn't they already determine what they're going to do? Folks, they're on the road to Egypt. Why are they seeking God's counsel with regard to what they should do when, in fact, it's already been predetermined by them? Interesting. Verse 4, Jeremiah says to him, I've heard you, and I am going to pray to the Lord. What does he say? Your God. See how he turns it back to him? I'm going to do it in accordance with your words, and I'm going to tell you, look, the whole message which the Lord will answer. Don't worry, I won't keep back one single word. Jeremiah is calling their bluff. He knows the motive is not good. Seek God's will for you, God's will I shall seek. And you shall hear it, and I will leave nothing out. In keeping with your obvious serious intention to know what God wants you to do, you shall know. Wasn't it cool? See how dramatic? I, that was yeah, yeah. That was really good. I thought that was good. Okay, so that's kind of what's going on over there. Verse 5, look at their response. May the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us if we do not act in accordance with the whole message with which the Lord Here we go again. Your God will send you to us. Whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, we will listen to the voice of the Lord. Now they're getting it. Our God. Look, look, look. They speak to Jeremiah to intercede on their behalf. And they say, Jeremiah, talk to your God. He said, I will talk to your God. And then they finally say, okay, he's our God. So they say, we don't care whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. Just tell us we will listen. Oh, my goodness. Do you know how serious that is? Oh, God, not my will, but thy will be done. Don't dare say it unless you mean it, because God will take you up on it. So anyway, that's what they say. Verse 7, at the end of 10 days, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. 10 days. Very significant. I'll tell you why. The people come. They ask for... uh, Counsel, God's counsel through Jeremiah. If it was of human uh, derivation, Jeremiah could deliver the goods right on spot. That's what pseudo holy men, false prophets do. They tell you God's will for your life right there. There's no praying. There's no seeking. There's no waiting. (laughs) There's no examination of the scriptures. God told me to tell you. Those are people you got to really, really watch out for. So as to uh, avoid the confusion in thinking that maybe what they're about to hear are Jeremiah's words rather than God's, God arranges for a 10-day waiting period. What you're about to hear is not from Jeremiah, because i got to tell you something. Uh, they're putting lots of pressure on Jeremiah. You know, we're packed up. We're staying at the hotel. we got to make treks to, to Egypt. Hurry up, Jeremiah. Tell us, tell us, tell us. If he was just a human guy... 
uh, operating out of uh, human wisdom and wanting to get them off his back, he would make up something. But he dare not until he hears from God. Ten-day waiting period. Something else about the ten days. I wonder if God permitted it so that they could see during that ten-day period, no harm befell them. They're running from the land of promise because they don't think God is big enough to take care of them there. They're going back to Egypt from whence they came, thus to provide for themselves. And I wonder if God is saying, what happened to you in 10 days? Did the Babylonians take your life? Did you starve? No, they're still alive. So after 10 days, verse 8, Jeremiah calls Johanan and all the people. Verse 9 says to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Verse 10, if you will indeed stay in the land, I'll build you up and not tear you down. I'll plant you, not uproot you. I will relent concerning the calamity I've inflicted on you. It was a calamitous situation, and sovereign God permitted it. There's no way around it. But he did not permit this horrific upheaval in the land to destroy he permitted it to deliver. These people needed to be reminded of the Most High God, his claim to them, and their need to submit to him. He's going to use the Babylonians, therefore, as a vehicle, not of destruction, but of discipline. As it says in Hebrews, those whom, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. But God takes no pleasure in the pain and suffering of his children, even if it be pain and suffering they have brought upon themselves. And so he says, I yearn, I yearn to lift all this and give you a sense of settledness in the land, to build you up, not to tear you down. I yearn to relent from all of this affliction. This is the father heart of God. It takes no pleasure in this. So that's what he says to them. Stay put. And I'll work it out. Verse 11, do not be afraid. Do you know that is the most oft-repeated commandment in the entire Bible? Do not be afraid or fear not. Do you know it has the same force of command as does any in the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt not steal. Commandment. It's a non-negotiable. Thou shalt not lie. Unless you feel like maybe it's okay. No, force of commandment. In the same sense, God says, Thou shalt not fear. Do you know why it's the most oft-repeated commandment in the Bible? Because it's the most frequently chosen mood we occupy. Fear. Fear. How could God tell us not to do something which is so much in keeping with our makeup? In this case, don't fear the king of Babylon, whom you are now fearing. Do not be afraid of him, declares the Lord. And here's where, why we can stop, for I am with you. So uh, what undergirds and um, what keeps fear going is the sense that you're alone in whatever contingency you are anticipating will befall you. Fear is anticipation of an outcome you don't want. That's what fear is. Fear is taking you, who only have the now, into the then. Fear has an irrational basis 
because you don't know about the then. You're just anticipating that your now is going to give way to the then and that the then ain't going to be good for you. God says you do it, stop doing it, and here's why. For I am with you. We're not alone. He's with us. And he happens to be the one who can see the then from the now. He can see the end from the beginning. And he says, I'm with you in the now. I shall be with you in the then. Therefore, stop fearing. Your fear is based on the fact that you're going to have to deal with the future contingency alone. No, I am with you. To do what? Look what it says. To save you and to deliver you. This is the kind intention of our Father God. He does not say there won't be pain and suffering and loss, and cause for grief and sorrow. He does not say that. He just says, I'm with you. And I have the capacity to use all those as vehicles. For what purpose? To save you and to deliver you. Charlie? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So we see the fatherhood of God. Now I want to show you something in verse 12. I will also show you compassion so that he will have compassion on you. Now you need to know the, who the he is. The he is Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king. Here's what Father God says. If you stay in the land of promise, if you trust me to take care of you here, if you stop taking your life into your own hands, if you resist the temptation to change externals, if you stay in the land and refuse to go back into Egypt, the place where I redeemed you from, then I will be with you. I'll use all this to save you and deliver you, and I'll show you compassion. And the form it will take is that he, Nebuchadnezzar, will be moved to show you compassion. How? Folks, Proverbs 17, uh, verse 22. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. I think it might be Proverbs 21.1, somewhere in Proverbs. Thank you, dear sister, thank you. Did you know that women are not allowed to speak in church? I just... Yes, ma'am. Please do. Wonderfully said. Thank you. This is a biblical illustration. God said, I'm going to show you compassion. And the way it will be manifested is I'm going to do just what you so wonderfully quoted. I'm going to turn the heart of the king. It's like channels of water in my hand. I want to tell you something. Two words that don't go together. Babylonians compassion the ancient world has inscribed for us a record of babylonian military tactics brutalization of the people under conquest compassion doesn't work with the babylonian empire but god says but i will show you compassion to such extent that i'll move even the babylonian king who you are subjugated by now to show you compassion. Now, here's the neat thing about the word compassion. Hebrew word, rachamim. Rachamim. 
an excellent word to say early in the morning to clear your throat. <laughs> Rachamim. Now here's the beauty of the word. It comes uh, from the word womb, womb. I, Father God, will show you a mother's love. That's what's in view. I'm your Father God. Think of me as the perfect dad you never had. Nobody has. I'm sovereign and I'm powerful. I can handle Nebuchadnezzar. But I will translate my power into such motherly love that it is receivable to you. I will have womb-like response to you if you trust me and stay put. I, your Father God, can love you with a mother's love. That's what's going on here. But, verse 13, if you're going to say, we won't stay, we won't listen, saying, verse 14, we will go to the land of Egypt where we will not see war, hear the sound of a trumpet, hunger for bread, we will stay there. Then, in that case, verse 15, thus says the Lord, if you really set your mind to enter Egypt, then the sword, which you are afraid of, will overtake you. Famine, about which you are anxious, will follow closely after you. You will die there. <clears throat> Quite a principle. <clears throat> God is saying, if you do not let me care for you, if you think you can be a better master of your own destiny than me, you're going to bring upon yourself the very outcome you are seeking to avoid. If you seek to leave this place, which is the place of blessing, to go back to that place where you used to be enslaved, you will run into the very outcome you are seeking to run from. You will run into war and famine and the very things you're trying to avoid here. Now, how could God say that? Because remember, he's the God who can see into the future, and he knows that this same Babylonian king between the years 587 and 586 B.C., He's going to wage a campaign against Egypt. He's going to beat the tar out of the Egyptians. There will be the trumpet of war. There will be horrific combat. There will be famine in the land. And all there will die at the hands of the Babylonians. It's a principle, folks. Father knows best. And when we seek to be autonomous from him, an independent agent, so as to avoid certain things in our life situation, we can run smack dab into it. I used to uh, struggle with uh, alcohol. <clears throat> I'm not ashamed to tell you because I, I said I used to. See, that's the difference. That's the difference. And I did it. It was learned behavior. Uh, and everyone, every human, every person here has something in common. That's why I'm not ashamed. We're all chickens in this coop. Why fake it? Here's what we want to do. We want to avoid pain and increase pleasure. That's us. So if I experience the pains of life, I learned a strategy. I can self-medicate. Then I feel no pain. Till you wake up. Then, not only are you pain-free, you have now accentuated the pain. You have aggravated it with something called guilt and shame. It's not just an ancient Israel history lesson here. Don't you get this? The Father knows best. Stay put. Stop trying to change your life situation thinking 
God supports it when, in fact, you haven't honestly sought his will at all. Stay put. Stay put. Don't go back to Egypt. What does that mean? It's nothing to do with geography for us. It represents what we refer to as the good old days. But they weren't the good old days. They were the bad old days from which God rescued us. And even us as Christians, when we run into very difficult times that cause us pain, when we become unsettled, we're very, very prone to make recourse to the stratagems we used in the old days. But God says, stay where you are now. You have the mind of Christ. It's different. You're a people of promise. You're not an enslaved people anymore. If you stay put, I'll take care of you. I'll see you through this. I'll bless you. If not, you're going to bring upon yourself the very thing you're seeking to avoid. Dwayne, you can attest. There's a, a fellow struggler with this stuff. <laughs> um, <coughs> Father knows best. Every time Israel ran into tough times, they want to go back to Egypt. What that means is they want to make resort uh, to what they made use of before. But we have the mind of Christ. It's different now. What do we do when we're in pain? How about this? Praying. No. Forget about praying. When you're in pain, don't pray. You cry out to God. Prayer means, our Father who art in heaven, you know, rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub. Come on. <laughs> when you're in pain, cry is an effusion of undignified emotion. It's not liturgical, dignified prayer. That's someone who can't get close to God. When you're in pain, you cry out, Abba, Father, I don't want to live. Help me to. That's not prayer. That's crying out to God. That's what we do. And then what else do we do? We buddy up with other Christians for burden bearing because we can't make it alone. And then what do we do? We do not study the Bible. We pour over the scriptures because we're desperate for a word of comfort. That's our stratagem, not taking things into our own hands. And then we say this. We say, God, I'm miserable, but I'm still your son. I would do better if I was a happy kid. But whether I'm happy or miserable, I'm still a kid. And you give yourself permission to be miserable. There's no commandment that says thou shalt be happy. So sometimes I say to God, I think I could just do better. I could really, really glorify you to the max. If you just give me, if you just, I'm, if you just make me float on air all the time. <laughs> but whether you do or not, even in the valley of life, I'm still your kid, irreversibly. I don't have to get myself out of this mood or that mood. I can stay, by going to Egypt, by resorting to the old ways, I can stay put until you, Father God, with a motherly rachamim compassion, lift me out of it. Because you're with me, not to destroy me, but to save me and to deliver me. So that's what goes on. Verse 17. So all the men set their mind to go to Egypt. They blew God off. Thus says the Lord, verse 18, As my anger and wrath have been poured out on Jerusalem, it will be poured out on you when you go to Egypt. 
Verse 19, the Lord spoke to you, O remnant of Judah. Don't go into Egypt. Verse 20, you've only deceived yourselves. Yeah. A young couple comes for premarital counseling. They speak to you as a minister. Though they may say so, they don't mean it. They are not asking you whether they should marry or not. They're saying, we need you to marry us. They are not seeking God's will. They have already made up their minds. It is his will. So you intervene. If you feel like they're not ready for it. It isn't a good match. The prognosis is not good. You lovingly intervene. And I'll tell you what they do. They find another minister to marry him. But they are deceiving only themselves. They craftily came seeking your counsel. But they're seeking your clerical licensure. So that they can legalize the marriage. And they like the church building. Folks, don't fake it. Don't say, God, I want your will for my life, when in fact you're saying, I want your stamp of approval on the decisions I've already made for my life. Don't act like you're seeking his will when, you're, when he's a puppet. Because he will say to you, as he says to me, you're only deceiving yourselves. You see, he's omniscient. He knows all things. He sees the heart. He can't fake it. He sees everything. These people were not seeking God's will. And Jeremiah smoked it out earlier on. And God calls it what it is. You are just deceiving. Your, I've told you today, you've not obeyed. <clears throat> Folks, God is not the divine Santa Claus to give us that which we want. He is there to give us lovingly out of uh, the, the power of a father God and the heart of a, of a mom. He's there to give us what we need to develop us and ready us for uh, our entry into our land of promise, which we call heaven. There's a lot of pruning that has to go on before that happens. And he's not there to put his stamp of approval on plans we have already predetermined to make. So be careful, lest you be like ancient Israel. By the way, the reason why Israel is so prominently displayed throughout the Bible, old and new, is not that we would be Israel-centered, nor laud Israel, nor worship Israel. It is that we would learn from Israel's interaction with Israel's God, lest we make the same mistakes. Stay put. Trust God. Don't try to manipulate the circumstances way outside of the will of God in order to avoid outcomes which we will actually bring to pass if we don't trust God to stay in the land and see us through it. Through presumption, Proverbs 13.10, comes nothing but strife, but with those who receive counsel, really receive it, is wisdom. Oh, thou great divine counselor, we bow before you. And God of all wisdom and mercy, and in accordance with your kind intentions, 
we would be in better shape, Lord Jesus, uh, but for hasty decisions we have made, decisions outside of your will, which we have persuaded ourselves and those around us are actually the course of action to take when, in fact, we didn't wait on you and they have not been. Well, you forgive us, and so we're really grateful, but we want to learn, Lord Jesus, to wait on you. We really want to say, just as you did in the Garden of Gethsemane, I don't think I like this outcome, this cup of devastation and torturous separation. Nonetheless, thy will be done, not mine. Oh, God, would you put that capacity, that uh, capacity to trust you, your kind intentions, your goodness, your gentleness, would you give us that capacity so that we, uh, like your only begotten son, yield to your will and stay put until you lead us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you folks. Lord willing, see you next week.